Oh, Holy that was... fuck, that was nice. I'm going to delete Garrison's dudes. So on the subject of doxing him. <laughs> God damn. What? No. Sorry. Perfect. Hey, it's his episode. This is the perfect way to start it. Uh, yeah. All right. Dana, should we start yes. this thing? Yes. Yeah. What What are we doing today? I have no clue. But on that note, welcome to the Market Machines podcast. This week, we will be discussing Operation Overlord. But first, shall we do some introductions? We shall. We shall. So you've got uh, up first, me, Callum, from New Zealand, and I've just ripped open a nice can of, uh, this is a Stoke handcrafted lager, mid-strength. It's only 2.5% because I'm trying to cut back on alcohol. Weak. I uh, know, but <laughs> I've done things to my body that can't repair, so yeah. Fair Who's enough. next? Well, you've got me, Garrison, out here in Kansas. Uh, no tornado in sight yet. I'm drinking a freshly brewed pot of coffee and uh i'll be your host tonight nice uh got me jack ontario shit i forgot a drink you fuck guess i'm not <laughs> drinking anything tonight rainwater you fucking peasant <laughs> you got me dennis also in ontario also forgot a drink so that'll be my job during the intermission rain fodder <laughs> uh and then there's me Ezra in New Mexico with a bottle of blue raspberry prime. Because Ooh. you get no rainwater. <laughs> yeah, I just you live on make prime. your own rainwater. <laughs> Ezra, isn't that isn't prime that new energy drink? Uh yes. no, this is prime hydration, not the prime energy. One comes in a can, one comes in a bottle. One's more hydrating than the other. Yes. Alrighty. Well, this week, Garrison, it is your show, so why don't you uh Take us off here, buddy. All right. Uh, today we're going to be going over Operation Overlord, which was the Allied invasion and campaign of Normandy, France, against the Axis powers from June 6th to August 30th, 1944. It goes right along with our... But that's not a machine. <laughs> it's not micro <laughs> This guy. This guy. <laughs> it has multiple machines that are micro. Multiple? Well, Name all of them. <laughs> All of them. Uh, first slide here, it's going to be the overview. So Operation Overlord was the code name for the Battle of Normandy, which was the Allied operation that launched the successful invasion of German-occupied Western Europe during World War II. The operation was launched on 6 June 1944, which was codenamed D-Day, with the Normandy landings, Operation Neptune. A 1,200-plane airborne assault preceded an amphibious assault involving more than 5,000 vessels. Nearly 160,000 troops crossed the English Channel on 6 June, and more than 2 million Allied troops were in France by the end of August of 44. And on the right there, got a nice pretty map showing the D-Day assault routes into Normandy. Now, I just want to give a heads up. The first few slides is going to be just about the preparation and D-Day itself, since there was so much that went into this huge invasion. But uh, Next slide, we got the Allied invasion plan. Overlord was the name assigned to the establishment of a large-scale spearhead into Europe. The first phase, which was an amphibious landing and establishment of 
a secure foothold was codenamed Operation Neptune and is often referred to as D-Day. To gain the required air superiority needed to ensure a successful invasion, the Allies launched a strategic bombing campaign codenamed Point Blank to target German aircraft production, fuel supplies, and airfields. Under the transport plan, communication infrastructure, road, and rail links were bombed to cut off the north of France and to make it more difficult to bring up reinforcements. These attacks were widespread, so to avoid revealing the exact location of the invasion. Elaborate deceptions were planned to prevent the Germans from determining the timing and location of the invasion. And on the right there, you've got the LSTs with barrage balloons deployed, unloading supplies on Omaha Beach for the breakout from. Next, uh, more about the Allied invasion plan. The coastline of Normandy was divided into seven sectors with codenames using a spelling alphabet from Abel, west of Omaha, to Roger on the east flanks of Sword. Eight further sectors were added when the invasion was extended to include Utah on the, I'm going to butcher this, Cotentin Peninsula. Sectors were further subdivided into beaches identified by the colors green, red, and white. Allied planners contemplated proceeding the seaborne landings with airborne troops near Caen on the eastern flank to secure the Orne, I believe that's how you say that, river bridges, and north of Carentan on the western flank. The initial goal was to capture Carentan. Uh, fucking is is a guinea. I don't know how to say that. Bayex and Con. The Americans assigned to land at Utah and Omaha were to cut off the Contenton Peninsula and capture the port facilities at Cherbourg. The British at Sword and Gold and the Canadians at Juneau were to capture Con and form a line, a front line from Camont de Avente to the southeast of Caen in order to protect the American flank while establishing airfields near Caen. Possession of Caen and its surroundings would give the Anglo-Canadian forces a suitable staging area for a push south to capture the town of Falaise. A secure lodgment would be established and an attempt made to hold all territory captured north of the uh, Avranches Falaise line during the first three weeks. The Allied armies would then swing left to advance towards the river sign. And then on the right there, you've got the airplane for the Allied landings in Normandy. My dog's name is Juno. He's a good uh, boy. Is it really? Yeah. Was he named after the beachhead? Something yes, like yes that. he was named after the beachhead. <laughs> don't deny that. <laughs> it would be uh, it would be a uh, coincidence, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. He's a he's a really good boy. Oh, I bet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, more about the Allied invasion plan. The invasion fleet, led by Admiral Sir Bert Ram Ramsey, which was probably uh, Gordon Ramsey's grandfather, was split into the Western Naval Task Force under Admiral Alan G. Kirk, supporting the American sectors and the Eastern Naval Task Force under Admiral Sir Philip Vane in the British and Canadian sectors. The American forces of the 1st Army, led by Lieutenant General Omar Bradley, comprised 7th Corps, Utah, 5th Corps, Omaha. On the British side, Lieutenant General Miles Dempsey commanded the 2nd Army, under which 30 Corps, 
was assigned to Gold, and First Corps was to Juno and Sword. Land forces were under the overall command of Montgomery, and Air Command was assigned to Air Chief Marshal Sir Trafford Leigh Mallory. The 1st Canadian Army launched personnel and units from Poland, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Other Allied nations also participated. And then on the right there, you got Supreme Commander Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Allied Expeditionary Force and his staff. All right, now we start getting to the juicy stuff. Reconnaissance. Uh, they're on the right-hand side. Got a nice Allied recon plane over Normandy. The Allied Expeditionary Air Force undertook over 3,200 photo reconnaissance sorties from April 1944 until the start of the invasion. Let's see, April to May, like barely a month, one month to two months, depending on when they sh when they started out in April. That is a lot of fucking sorties. That is a close march when they're running down. <laughs> that that's <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize he said that many fucking planes out. Jesus Christ! <laughs> he really went to the eleventh hour. <laughs> No kidding. Oh man, uh, photos of the coastlines were taken at extremely low altitude to show the invaders the terrain, obstacles on the beach, and defensive structures such as bunkers and machine gun emplacements. To avoid alerting the Germans as to the location of the invasion, this work had to be undertaken over the entire European coastline. Inland terrain, bridges, troop emplacements, and buildings were also photographed in many cases from several angles to give the Allies as much information as possible. Members of the Combined Operations Pilotage Parties uh, clandestinely prepared detailed harbor maps, including depth sounding. More about recon. We uh, Training exercises for the Operation Overlord landings took place as early as July 1943, as the nearby beach resembled the planned Normandy landing site. The town of Slapton in Devon, was evacuated in December of 1943 and taken over by the armed forces as a site for training exercises. That included the use of landing craft and the management of beach obstacles. A friendly fire incident there on 27th of April 1944 resulted in as many as 450 deaths. The following day, an additional estimate of 749 American soldiers and sailors died when German torpedo boats surprised members of Assault Force U conducting Exercise Tiger. Exercises with landing craft and live ammunition all also took place at the Combined Training Center in Inverroway. I don't know how the fuck to say that. In Scotland. Naval exercises took place in Northern Ireland, and medical teams in London and elsewhere rehearsed how they would handle and the expected waves of casualties. Paratroopers conducted exercises, including a huge demonstration drop on 23rd March 1944, observed by Churchill, Eisenhower, and other top officials. And there on the right is a training exercise with live ammunition for the build-up to D-Day. So that, that town is um, Inverary in Scotland. Oh, I know, know that because I've been there. It's a cool little town. Really? Yeah, they got an, uh, the historical jail and everything there. It's a, it's a very uh, idyllic. It's not yeah, a count. How are the pubs? Pretty damn good. Yeah, as befits a town of such historical significance. Oh yeah, it's old school. Moving on, uh, here on the right side, you got diagram showing the weather on June fifth, nineteen forty-four. Uh, so we're going to be going over weather forecasting. The invasion planners specified a set of conditions regarding the timing of the invasion. 
deeming only a few days in each month suitable. A full moon was desirable, as it would provide illumination for aircraft pilots and have the highest tides. The Allies wanted to schedule the landings for shortly before dawn, midway between low and high tide, with the tide coming in. This would improve the visibility of obstacles the enemy had placed on the beach while minimizing the amount of time the men had to spend exposed in the open. Specific criteria were also set for wind speed, visibility, and cloud coverage. Eisenhower had tentatively selected 5 or 5th June as the date for the assault. However, on uh, June 4th, conditions were clearly unsuitable for a landing. High winds and heavy seas made it impossible to launch landing aircraft or landing craft, and low clouds would prevent aircraft from finding their targets. More about weather forecasting. Uh, on the right-hand side, you got a photograph showing landing craft headed towards Normandy with choppy waves. By the evening of June 4th, the Allied Metrological Team meteorological goddamn i can't fucking speak tonight predicted that the weather would improve sufficiently so the invasion could go ahead on june 6 he met eisenhower and other senior commanders at their headquarters to discuss the situation general montgomery and major general walter bedley or bedell bedell smith were eager to launch the invasion admiral ramsey was prepared to commit his ships while Air Chief Marshal Tafford expressed concern that the conditions would be unfavorable for Allied aircraft. After much discussion, Eisenhower decided that the invasion should go ahead. Had Eisenhower postponed the invasion again, the next available period would be for with the right conditions of tide, but without the desirable full moon, was two weeks later from 18 to 20th June. As it happened, during this period, the invaders would have encountered a major storm lasting four days between 19 and 22nd June that would have made the initial landings impossible. So he made a good call. All right, now we're going to start getting into German defenses and preparations. Now on the right-hand side, you got this really neat photograph of German troops from the Indian Legion on the Atlantic Wall in France, 21st of March, 1944, with a MG-34. I thought that was pretty neat. Uh, Nazi Germany had at its disposal 50 divisions in France and the Low Countries, with another 18 stationed in Denmark and Norway. 15 divisions were in the process of formation or formation in Germany, but there was no strategic reserve. The Calais, am I saying that correctly, Callum? Calais? The Calais region? Calais. Calais. Yeah, you. you just don't have to say the S. Gotcha. The Calais region was defended by the 15th Army under Colonel General Hans von Salmuth and Normandy by the 7th Army commanded by Friedrich Dahlmann. Combat losses throughout the war, particularly on the Eastern Front, meant the Germans no longer had a pool of able young men from which to draw. German soldiers were now on the average six years older than their allied counterparts. Many in the Normandy area were Eastern legions, conscripts, and volunteers from Turkestan, Russia, Mongolia, and elsewhere. Vermalek had provided them mainly with unreliable captured equipment. They lacked motorized transportation. Formations that arrived later, such as the 12th SS Panzer Division, the Hitler Youth, were for the most part younger and far better equipped and trained than the static troops stationed along the coast. 
Here on the right, you got German troops around St. Lo. Thought that was a pretty neat picture, and we'll uh, we'll get into that one a little bit later as well. But more about German defenses and preparations. The first SS Panzer Division. Um, Adolf Hitler, 9th, 11th, 19th, and 116th Panzer Divisions, alongside the 2nd SS Panzer Division, Das Reich, had only arrived in March to May of 1944 to France for extensive refit after being badly damaged during the uh, Nibir Carpathian Offensive, which had taken over 45,827 troops. 363 tanks, assault guns, and self-propelled anti-tank guns out of France from December 43 to April 44. Seven of the 11 Panzer or Panzer Grenadier divisions stationed in France were still not fully operational or only partially mobile in early June 1944. Got a lot of battered units there. Moving on to the Atlantic Wall. Uh, got this neat diagram showcasing the Atlantic Wall from 42 to 44. And uh have to say that is pretty impressive, the amount of defenses they were able to put up throughout the entire area. But well, alarmed... They weren't oh, go that good, though. Uh, most of the Atlantic Wall, you know, they used um, prisoners and, you know, slave labor to build them. They were quite crafty, though, because they couldn't, you know, with such a large force building stuff, you can't keep an eye on everyone. And there was still um, quite a lot of... Uh, sabotage and subterfuge uh, when they're building it. Like a lot of the time, the concrete they would mix the concrete in the wrong ratios, uh, put in too much sand or something like that, and it would make it incredibly weak. So a lot of the Atlantic Wall wasn't as strong as you'd think it was, um, just because you know you're using what a million people to build it. A lot of them hate you and don't want you to succeed. Yeah, they're going to do some fiddly stuff with all your stuff, with uh, your materials. Uh, so a lot, a lot of the Atlantic Wall was pretty weak, you know. Now, now Garrison, Calm, this is a question for you guys. So yep. the way I understand it is that along the Atlantic Wall, most of it was fairly sparse. Is this correct? Like the actual fortifications themselves, there weren't too many of them. Correct. It was pockets. Yeah, it was a lot of it was like recon outpost. Yeah. It was mainly the heavily fortified would have been, you know, possible landing areas, uh, harbors, beaches, stuff like that. But a lot of the, a lot around there is also just cliffs, so that's sort of like a natural barrier. Although not that it yep. stopped the rangers, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll discuss those in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of the Atlantic Wall. It's not just a solid wall that continues the entire way around. Oh yeah, no, no. But I just like how looking at the map. I just like looking at the map. You got like Norway, Finland, you know, all around. And then you got Sweden. It's just chilling, just like, eh, don't mind me, <laughs> right? <laughs> Do they work her in Sweden? We will invade Sweden and then invade Norway through there, through them. <laughs> Go up and around. <laughs> uh, well, uh, to talk more about the Atlantic Wall. Alarmed by the raids at Saint-Nazaire and Dieppe in 1942, Hitler ordered the construction of fortifications all along the Atlantic coast from Spain to Norway in order to protect against any expected Allied invasion. He envisioned 15,000 emplacements manned by 300,000 troops, but due to shortages, particularly of concrete and manpower, most of the strong points were never built. As the expected site of the Allied invasion, Pasadena, Calais, Cows, whatever the fuck we said earlier, was heavily defended. 
in the Normandy area, the best fortifications were con concentrated at the port facilities of Cherbourg and St. Malo. A report by Rundstedt to Hitler in October of 43 regarding the weak defenses in France led to the appointment of Rommel to oversee the construction of further fortifications along the expected invasion front, which stretched from the Netherlands to Cherbourg. Rommel was given command of the newly reformed German Army Group B, which included the 7th Army, the 15th Army, and the forces guarding the Netherlands. Nazi Germany's tangled command structure made it difficult for Rommel to achieve his task. He was not allowed to give orders to the organization... Yeah, organization taunt. I don't know what that is. Uh, what's that? That's their committee, wasn't it? For Western Europe? I believe oh, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Organization, organization toad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which was commanded by armaments minister Albert Speer. So, in some places, he had to assign soldiers to do construction work. Which, I mean, that right there alone tells you how bad the communication was with the entire German army. I mean, to be fair, it is kind of hard to coordinate and communicate with all sorts of different people all over a huge continent, but the Germans did not make it easy on themselves. Uh, here on the right-hand side, we have Beach Obstacles at the Pass de Calles, April 18th, 1944. More about the Atlantic Wall. Rommel believed that the Normandy coast would be a possible landing point for the invasion, so he ordered the construction of extensive defenses, <laughs> excuse me, defensive works along that shore. In addition to concrete gun emplacements at strategic points along the coast, he ordered wooden stakes, metal tripods, mines, and large anti-tank obstacles to be placed on the beach to delay the approach of landing craft and to impede the movement of tanks. Expecting the Allies to land at high tide so the infantry would spend less time exposed on the beach, he ordered many of these obstacles to be placed at the high tide mark. Tangles of barbed wire, booby traps, and the removal of ground cover made the approach hazardous for infantry. On Rommel's order, the number of mines along the coast was tripled. Given the Allied air superiority, which was 4,029 Allied aircraft assigned to operations in Normandy, plus 5,514 aircraft assigned bombing and defense, versus the Luftwaffe's 570 planes stationed in France and the Low Countries. And booby traps... Stakes known as Rommel Spargles, which is Rommel's asparagus, were also set up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Garrison, did we lose half of our our crew? <laughs> They're gone. I was just checking. I was just. Oh no! What happened? I, I, I was just lost. Yeah, I'm here. I was just looking at Rommel's asparagus. I was just. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I had to mute my I, mic. I, I started laughing too much. So. Yeah, <laughs> for real. Uh, asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, our glider hit one of Rommel's asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> oh boys, oh. don't bunch up. You might get caught behind one of Rommel's asparagus. <laughs> Is that, is that a Rommel's asparagus in your pants, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Fräulein, would Rommel's you like to see my asparagus? <laughs> 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 all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Alright. Uh. Booby trapped stakes known as the Rommel Asparagus were set up in meadows and fields to deter <laughs> airborne <laughs> <laughs> Uh, please right, proceed. proceed. <laughs> yep. Oh, that was good. <laughs> Next. Oh. Too busy thinking about it. <laughs> Dennis, <laughs> don't go thinking about Rommel's asparagus too much. You <laughs> might get the yeah, Mrs. I can't help it, Calum. It's just who I am. Oh, God. T- tossing Rommel's salad. he's got his you got his asparagus what's next his lettuce oh god (laughs) he's got the cherry tomatoes next (laughs) 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 all right all right uh now we're gonna move on to the invasion uh they're on the right hand side got a pretty cool picture showcasing british pathfinders uh synchronizing their watches in front of an armstrong with worth Abel Marie, Mar- uh, Abel, uh, Callum, help. Uh, you know more about planes. I can't pronounce words tonight. Uh, Alb Marley? Sure. What the fuck? Is that a I real thing? A- I think it's Abel Marl. Abel. I think you don't really pronounce the L as much. Uh, like the first one. I, I, need a, I need to search that. I've never heard of that before. It, it was a, it was used to actually, like, that's the thing. The, the uh, I'm just going to call it the Abel Marley. That was really important uh for distributing pathfinders not just in normandy but basically all throughout the war it was this incredibly tough aircraft that was really good for uh paradrops hmm well the more you know uh so to continue on for the invasion by may of 1944 1.5 million american troops had arrived in the united kingdom that's a lot of fucking yanks most were housed in temporary camps on the southwest of England, ready to move across the English Channel to the western section of the landing zone. British and Canadian troops were builded in accommodation further east, spread from Southampton to New Haven, and even on the east coast for men who would be coming across in later waves. A complex system called a movement control assured that the men and vehicles left on schedule from 20 departure points that's a lot of points to depart this entire like just the logistics behind this is mind-blowing yeah uh some men had to board their craft nearly a week before departure oh, that God. is wild yeah can you imagine uh, an lst before it even left yeah they would have to <laughs> we did that on deployment we got on ship like four days early come on garrison hurry up and wait Pretty much, <laughs> some things never change. You know, I've just I've just searched up the uh, old Mali. That shit huh. is a cool looking aircraft. Maybe you can uh, do an episode over it someday. Wink, wink. Maybe Ooh. it looks like it looks like a cross between a Beaufort and a B twenty five. Yeah, <coughs> it is cool. Anyway. Yes, uh, to continue on, the ships met at a rendezvous point nicknamed Piccadilly Circus, southeast <laughs> of the Isle of Wight, and assembly into, to assemble into convoy lanes, I'm sorry, I'm skipping lines, uh, to assemble into convoys to cross the channel. Minesweepers began clearing lanes on the evening of 5th June, and a thousand bombers left before dawn to attack the coastal defenses. 
Some 1,200 aircraft departed England just before midnight to transport three airborne divisions to their drop zones behind enemy lines several hours before the beach landings. The American 82nd 101st Airborne Divisions were assigned objectives on the Kuntenny Peninsula west of Utah. The British 6th Airborne Division was assigned to capture the intact capture intact the bridges over the Con and Canal and River Orne. The Free French 4th SAS Battalion and 538 men were assigned objectives in Brittany, Operation Dingson, Operation Sam West. Some 132,000 men were transported by sea on D-Day, and a further 24,000 came by air. Uh, preliminary naval bombardment commenced at 5.45 and continued until 6.25 from five battleships, 20 cruisers, six five, 65 destroyers, and two monitors. Infantry began arriving on the beaches around 6.30. That's wild. A five-minute delay from when the last rounds fired from those ships to when the infantry hit the deck. Yeah, that's insane. All right, so now we'll get into all of the beaches. So the first one I'm going to go over is Utah. On the right-hand side, you got U.S. soldiers of the 8th Infantry Division, 4th Infantry Division advanced over the seawall at Utah. The craft bearing the U.S. 4th Infantry Division assaulting Utah were pushed by the current to a spot about 1,800 meters, which is 2,000 yards, south of their intended landing zone. Uh, the troops met light resistance, suffering fewer than 200 casualties. Their efforts to push inland fell short of their targets for the first day. They were able to advance about four miles, which is 6.4 uh, kilometers. Wait, no. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 6.4 kilometers, making contact with the 101st Airborne Division. The airborne landings west of Utah were not very successful, as only 10% of the paratroopers landing in their drop zones, which is... A horrible number. That's awful. But gathering it's, them in uh, together. VDV numbers right there. Uh, fuck. <laughs> VDV is like, what, fucking one airfield and that was it? <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, gathering the men together into fighting units was made difficult by a shortage of radios and by the terrain with its hedgerows, stone walls, and marshes. The 82nd Airborne Division captured its primary objective at St. Mariglise and worked to protect the western flank. Its failure to capture the river crossing at the River Merderet resulted in a delay in sealing off the Continent Peninsula. The 101st Airborne Division helped protect the southern flank and captured the lock on the River Douve at La Perquette, but did not capture the assigned nearby bridges on the first day. Next. All right. uh, beaches, Point du Hoc. Uh, here on the right-hand side, you have an aerial view of Point du Hoc during the latter month of June 1944. Uh, at Point du Hoc, the task for the 200 men of the 2nd Ranger Battalion, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James Rubber, was to scale the 30-meter, 98-foot cliffs with ropes and ladders to destroy the gun batteries located there. 
While under fire from above, the men scaled the cliff, only to discover that the guns had already been withdrawn. The rangers located the weapons unguarded, but already but ready to use. In an orchard about 550 meters, which is roughly 600 yards south of the point, and disabled them. Under attack, the men at the point became isolated, and some were captured. By dawn, at D-Day plus one, seven June, rubber and only 90 men able to fight. Relief did not come until D-Day plus two on June 8th, when members of the 743rd Tank Battalion arrived. There's a fun mission on Call of Duty 2 about that. Uh, let's see here. Oh yes, Beaches, Omaha. So the photograph on the right is called Into the Jaws of Death. Shows American troops part of the U.S. 1st Infantry Division leaving a Higgins boat on Omaha Beach. Omaha, the most heavily defended sector, was assigned to the U.S. 1st Infantry Division, supplemented by troops from the U.S. 29th Infantry Division. They faced the 352nd Infantry Division rather than the expected single regiment. Strong currents forced many landing craft east of their intended position or delayed them. Casualties were heavier than all the other landings combined as the men were subjected to fire from the cliffs above. Problems clearing the beach of obstacles led to the beachmaster calling a halt to further landings until of all vehicles at 8.30. A group of destroyers arrived around this time to offer supporting artillery fire. Exit from Omaha was possible only via five goalies, and by late morning, barely 600 men had reached the higher ground. By noon, as the artillery fire took its toll and the Germans started to run out of ammunition, the Americans were able to clear some lanes on the beaches. They had also started clearing the draws. Excuse me. <clears throat> they had also started clearing the draws of enemy defenses so that vehicles can move off the beach. The tenacious beachhead was expanded over the following days and the D-Day objectives were accomplished by D-Day plus three, which was another slide over Omaha. The first components of the Mulberry Harbors were brought across on D-Day plus one, June 7th, and the structures were in use for unloading by mid-June. One was constructed by Aramanches by the British and the other at Omaha by the Americans. Severe storms on June 19th interrupted the landing of supplies and destroyed the Omaha Harbor. The repaired Aramanches Harbor was able to receive around 6,000 tons of material daily and was in continuous use for the next 10 months. But most shipments were brought in over the beaches until the port of Cherbourg was cleared of mines and obstacles and obstructions on July 16th, 1944. I uh, got a cool picture at the buildup of Omaha Beach, the 2nd Infantry Division troops and equipment moving inland towards St. Laurent sur Mer on D-Day Plus One, June 7th, 1944. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. Jesus. What was that? <laughs> trying to clear my throat. <laughs> Sip my coffee. That was um, a wonderful auditory experience there. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Um, beaches. We got gold. Uh, men of the 47th Commando landing at gold near La Riviere. Uh, gold high winds made conditions difficult for landing craft, and the amphibious DD tanks either landed close to the shore or directly on the beach instead of further out as planned, which is convenient. Uh, 
Aerial attacks had failed to hit the La Hamel strong point, and its 75mm guns continued to do damage until 1600. On the western flank, the 1st Battalion Hampshire Regiment, Hampshire Regiment, whatever the fuck, captured Aramanches. <laughs> Uh, future site of Mulberry B and contact was made on the eastern flank with the Canadian forces at Juneau next beaches Juneau hey you can see there in the picture there's there's dudes hopping out with fucking bicycles just as prophesized Jack (laughs) (laughs) when the Canadians attack will be environmentally friendly (laughs) I bet bet they're e-bikes too look at those wheels are those 29ers Oh my god! <laughs> the mountain bikes. They got the pe- no. They got penny farthings, dude. Oh, it, oh the tactical penny farthing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it folds up in the center. Oh god! Well, uh, <laughs> as you can see there, gentlemen, that is the Ninth Canadian Infantry Brigade moving ashore at Nawite at June Juno Beach after leaving the LCI or else whatever the fuck on June sixth, nineteen forty four, with their environmentally friendly e bikes. I've never seen that picture before. That's awesome. <laughs> so many e-bikes. So many batteries that need to be charged up. <laughs> they were training along the uh, shore in Oshawa. Yeah, they were. They were just using the Lakeshore Trail. They were just on the path, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's our tactical go train? <laughs> God. Well... The landings of infantry at Juno were delayed because of rough seas, and the men arrived ahead of their supporting armor, suffering many casualties while disembarking. Shit, Most that was the... in rough seas, too. Oh my god. Fuck yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, most of the offshore bombardment had missed the German defenses. In spite of these difficulties, the Canadians quickly cleared the beach and created two exits to the villages above. Delays in taking Ben Surmeyer... Uh, led to congestion on the beach, but by nightfall, the fucking words, god damn it, contiguous, whatever the fuck, Juno and Gold Beachheads had covered an area of 12 miles, there we go, 19 kilometers wide, and 7 miles, 10 kilometers deep. Uh, One troop, it is the act, for one day, that is actually pretty good. Uh, better than what Russia did on the first day of the invasion. <laughs> Got, right. Got the yes. All right. Uh, one troop of the first Hushar tank regiment was the only Allied unit to achieve its objectives on the first day of the invasion. Casualties at Juno were 961 men and e-bikes. So uh, here on the right-hand side, you got some cool pictures showing the British Army fighting for Sword Beach. Uh, Sword Beach, 21 of 25 DD tanks successfully or succeeded in getting safely ashore to provide cover for the infantry who began that disembarking. Many? Yeah, 21. Those death traps. Have them sunk. How do they get that many on, on, onto the shore? Um, that's a good question. I have no idea. Good job, uh, Britain, I guess. For real, they only lost four tanks. That's, that's pretty good. Um. But they quickly cleared the beach and created several exits for the tanks. In the windy conditions, the tide came in more quickly than expected, making maneuvering the armor difficult. The second battalion, King's chauffeur, is that chauffeur? Shropshire. Shropshire. Thank you. I can't read. I'm American. Light infantry advanced on foot to within a few kilometers of Khan, but had to withdraw due to the lack of armor support. 
At 1600, the German 21st Panzer Division mounted a counterattack between Sword and Juno and nearly succeeded in reaching the coast. They met stiff resistance from the British 3rd Infantry Division and were soon recalled to assist in the area between Caen and Bux. Bux, Bikes, however the fuck you say that. Bye. Bye. And then here you got some cool pictures uh, showcasing Normandy invasions of gold, Juno, and Sword. Um, and then the overall invasion. But if you want to go to the next slide, there's uh, it goes into close-ups. Oh, I guess it doesn't. Well, fuck. Uh, my bad. Well, casualties. Uh, Allied casualties on the first day were at least 10,000 men with 4,414 confirmed dead. The Germans lost 1,000 men. The Allied invasion plans had called for the capture of Carentan, St. Lo, Caen, and Bobikes, how the fuck you say that, on the first day, with all the beachheads other than Utah linked with a front line 10 to 16 kilometers, which is 6 to 10 miles, from the beaches. None of the objectives were achieved. The five bridgeheads were not connected until June 12th, by which time the Allies had a front running at 97 kilometers, which is 60 miles along, and 24 kilometers, which is 15 miles deep. Nearly 160,000 troops crossed the English Channel on June 6th, and more than 2 million Allied troops were in France by the end of August. Caen, a major objective, was still in German hands at the end of D-Date and would not be completely captured until July 20, July 21st. Uh, there on the right, you got uh, killed in action USG on the Normandy coast. Uh, you got guys there chilling back. I believe that was Omaha. I think. But uh, now we could go into the battlefields of Normandy. So, of course... Before we go into this, there were multiple engagements uh, moving from place to place in Normandy. A lot of bukage fighting, village fighting, things like that. Right now, we're only covering major, uh, major battles. Of course, the entire campaign was a huge, you know, it was a really important campaign, but we're just trying to hit the highlights here. So uh, here on the right-hand side, you got operations in the Battle for Khan. Uh, so the... Fighting in the Khan area versus the 21st Panzer Division, the 12th SS Panzer Division Hitler Youth, and other units soon reached a stalemate. During Operation Perch, 30 Corps attempted to advance south towards Mont Pincon. Pincon, is that how you say that, Pincon? Uh, I don't know what that C means. Uh, Pisson, I think. Pisson. You're going to piss off the Germans. Uh, but soon abandoned the direct approach in favor of a pincer attack to encircle Khan. 30 Corps made a flanking move towards Tilly sur Selus, toward Villers Bukage, with part of the 7th Armored Division, while 1st Corps tried to pass Khan to the east. <gasps> Excuse me. The attack by 1st Corps was quickly halted, and 30 Corps briefly captured Villers Bukage. Advanced elements of the British forces were ambushed, initiating a day-long battle of Villers-Bukage and then the Battle of the Box. The British were forced to withdraw to tilly sur suez After a delay because of storms from 17 to 23rd June, Operation Epson began on June 26th, an attempt by 8 Corps to swing around and attack Khan from the southwest and establish a bridgehead south of Odon. 
Con was a bloody mess. It really was. More about Khan. So here on the right hand side, he got Allied armor during the battle for Khan. Am I saying that right, Khan? I've heard it pronounced. Yeah, Kane. it's it's Khan. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Actually, funnily enough, that tank is actually Canadian. That's from, I believe, uh, the Lord Strathcona's. Uh, or maybe it's from the RCD. I think it's actually from the RCDs. But yeah, that's a that's a Canadian tank. I thought that was a Fourth Armored Division. It may tank. Is it? I think so. I thought. I thought. I. Th- I thought it was. I don't know. I, we need to see the uh, the divisional flash, which I think unfortunately is covered up by a road wheel. Hang on. Yeah, it just says see. RC, but I, I yeah. see RC. Got RC yeah. on the front. That's got to do mean something because that's not remote American. control. entirely off. I think I might be wrong. That might mean it's a radio command because you can see all the uh, radio antenna sticking out of it. Oh yeah, that would make good sense. point. Yeah, remote <clears> control. <laughs> it's the, uh, the the Tamir remote control tank. Oh God! <laughs> you got some rivet counter in the back of the building over there controlling it with a stupid ass controller. <laughs> Comically oh, large controller. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I will say one cool thing with that Sherman is uh, look at the driver's uh, screen. He's got one of those cool windshields. He does. Yeah, that's right. That's I. I don't blame the man. I would too, honestly, if I could. You see the little coax gunner's head sticking out. <laughs> he, he went to uh, pimp my tank before he left. <laughs> yeah, it's slightly lowered. <laughs> aftermarket road wheels. <laughs> one to one aftermarket. <laughs> All right. Well, although the operation failed to take Con, the Germans suffered many tank losses after committing every available Panzer unit to the operation. Fucking Jesus. bad mistake. Uh, Rundstedt was dismissed on the 1st of July and replaced by OB West by Field Marshal Gunther von Klug after remarking that the war was now lost. <laughs> Damn. How very prescient of him. Imagine putting all of your tanks in one area and they just get fucking wiped. God, that's, the, that's a noob move. Anyways. Uh, the northern suburbs of Caen were bombed on the evening of July 7th and then occupied north of the River Orne in Operation Charnwood on the 8th to 9th of July. Operation Atlantic and Operation Goodwood captured the rest of Caen and the high ground to the south from 18th to 21st of July, which made the time... What the fuck? Callum's just starting his vibrator, don't worry. Oh, that's right, that's right. Oh, that's my compressor, uh, my bad. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's Jack my is starring Callum's vibrator. Callum's vibrator. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, come here, Callum. Spread those legs. <laughs> oh, God. I unmuted because I heard Goodwood, and I was going to say... That's gonna make, I was gonna... <laughs> the vibrator. <laughs> the vibrator brings along some good wood, I tell you what. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's see here. Let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, God, that's a big run on sentence. Operation Atlantic and Operation Goodwood captured the rest of Khan and the high ground to the south from 18th to 21st of July, by which time the city was nearly destroyed. Unfortunately, Hitler survived an assassinated attempt on 20th of July. Boo! Better get a, be a better shot. Skill issue. Skill issue. Ah! Ah! Alright. Is that Panzer Shock Lad finally kicking in, Garrison? No, he's just been sitting on the uh, compressor. After. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I finally climaxed. Took long enough. Uh, no, nah, it's, it's shared work. I like the 
I like the Contentment Peninsula campaign. He he gets really happy when he sees peninsulas. I do. They're so fun. Uh, I won't tell you what they look like. In the western part of the lodgement, the U.S. troops were to occupy the Continent Peninsula, especially Cherbourg, which would be which would provide the Allies with a deep water harbor. The terrain behind Utah and Omaha was characterized by a bucage with thorny hedgerows on embankments three to four feet, which is 0.91 to 1.2 meters high. But what is that but, in Columbi? Meters? What? What? What do you mean in Columbi? Well, you know the standard measurement from the MMP. Oh, how many columns can we fit in this hedgerow? Uh, I'm going to cram columns into it. Uh, that's like. I don't know, about half, maybe. Just right, over so half. So, Tom, bend over. <laughs> <laughs> With a ditch on the other side, many areas were additionally protected by rifle pits and machine gun emplacements. Most of the roads were too narrow for tanks. The Germans had flooded the fields behind Utah with seawater for up to 2 miles, 3.2 kilometers, from the coast. German forces on the peninsula included the 91st Infantry Division, the 243rd and 709th Static Infantry Divisions. So on the right-hand side here, you have American Armed Forces initially forced a corridor across the Continent Peninsula and then cleared it of German military resistance by the end of June. Ah, I love seeing... I don't know how many hours I've spent on Google Maps just street viewing this peninsula. It's so beautiful. I would live there. Uh, ah, it's, it's gorgeous. So, to continue on my climax here of Cherbourg, by D-Day plus 3, the Allied commanders realized that Cherbourg would not quickly be taken, and decided to cut off the peninsula to prevent any further reinforcements from being brought in. After failed attempts by the inexperienced 90th Infantry Division, Major General J. Lawton Collins, the 7th Corps commander, assigned the veteran 9th Infantry Division to the task. They reached the west coast of the continent. God damn it. Contenny on the 17th of June, cutting off Cherbourg. The 9th Division, joined by the 4th and 79th Infantry Divisions, took control of the peninsula in fierce fighting on the 19th of June. Cherbourg was captured on the 29th of June. By this time, the Germans had destroyed the port facilities, which were not brought back into full operation until September. And on the right-hand side there, you got U.S. troops moving through the port city of Cherbourg. Fucking shit up. Then you got U.S. infantry during Operation Cobra next to a destroyed tank there on the right. Ah, oh, I love Bukash pictures. All right, so this is the breakout from the beachheads. After securing territory in the Cotton Peninsula south as far as St. Lowe, the U.S. 1st Army launched Operation Cobra on the 25th of July and advanced further south to Avranches by the 1st of August. The British launched Operation Bluecoat, <laughs> funny because they were once redcoats, on the 30th of July to secure Vire and the high ground of Mont Picon. Lieutenant General Patton's U.S. 3rd Army, activated on the 1st of August, quickly took most of Brittany and territory as far south as Lurie, while the 1st Army maintained pressure eastward towards Le Mans 
to protect their flank. By August 3rd, Patton and the 3rd Army were able to leave a small force in Brittany and drive eastward towards the main concentration of German forces south of Caen. Over Klug's objectives, the 4th of August, Hitler ordered a counteroffensive, which was nicknamed Operation Lucht, from Weyer towards Avranches. Look at all those infantrymen. Yeah, mm. <laughs> destroyed. The, the only way a Stoke should exist. Is Ezra still here with us? I'll take that as a no, thank God, because he would probably God, have a, a have a small mental injury looking That's, at that photo. I had like five different pictures to choose, and I chose that one specifically so I could hear him rage. No, the I tornado already that. got him, dude. <laughs> tornado. <laughs> New Mexico has tornadoes now, what? Oh shit. Well, I mean, it's the it's the Bermuda Triangle. Like, they've got everything. Uh, that's the other side of. Uh, no. Where did this guy go? <laughs> did he, he go to the had, um, internet problems? Did he? He's American. He doesn't. He's not allowed to have internet problems. I thought he also said he was going to the gym. He did, but it wasn't supposed to be for a while. I guess he lied. No, he's just you know he's not he's still here, but he took so much pre-workout that he's like high as a kite. Yeah, <laughs> that's Ezra right now. He's ascending. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, while Second Canadian Corps pushed south from Con towards the Falaise Gap in Operation Totalize on the eighth of August. Bradley Montgomery realized that there was an opportunity for the bulk of the German forces to be trapped in the gap. The Third Army continued to the encirclement from the south, reaching Adekholm on August 11th. Although Hitler continued to insist that his forces should counterattack, Klug and his officers began planning a retreat eastward. Because they were smart, Hitler was not. The German forces were severely hampered by Hitler's insistence on making all major decisions himself, which left his forces without orders for periods as long as up to 24 hours, while information was sent back and forth to the Führer's residence at Oberschlitzberg in Bavaria. On the evening of August 12th, Patton asked Bradley if his forces could continue northward to close the gap and encircle the German forces. Bradley refused, because Montgomery had already assigned the 1st Canadian Army to take the territory from the north. The Canadians met heavy resistance and captured Falaise on the 16th of August. The gap was closed on the 21st of August, trapping 50,000 German troops, but more than a third of the German 7th Army, with the remnants of the 9th and 11th Panther Divisions, had escaped to the east. <clears throat> All right. Continuing on the breakout from the beaches on the right hand side here, you have U.S. forces in Chamboise during the Battle of the Falaise Pocket, also known as the Falaise Gap. Montgomery's decision making regarding the Falaise Gap was criticized at the time by the American commanders, especially Patton, although Bradley was more sympathetic and believed Patton would not have been able to close the gap. Uh, the issue had been the subject of much discussion among historians, criticism being leveled at American, British, and Canadian forces. Wow, Hitler, so everyone. Pretty much. I mean, hey, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Uh, but we still don't have a fucking, you know, no one can still get along on that shit. But we did the best we could in the situation we were given. Uh, Hitler relived, or 
oh, I'm sorry, Hitler relieved Klug of his command of OB West on the 15th of August and replaced him with Field Marshal Walter Model. Klug committed suicide. <laughs> God damn, I forgot about oh, that. <laughs> oh, fuck. Okay. Damn. Uh, bro didn't even wait a whole week. He just fucking popped his top. All right. Uh, he committed suicide on the 19th of August after Hitler became aware of his involvement in the July 20th plot. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was trying to kill Hitler. Uh, rest in peace, my guy. An invasion of southern France, Operation Dragoon, was launched on 15th August. All right, here on the right-hand side, you got troops in Paris. The French resistance in Paris rose against the Germans on August 19th. Eisenhower initially wanted to bypass the city to pursue other targets, but amid reports that the citizens were going hungry and Hitler's stated in intention to destroy it, de Goulart insisted that it should be taken immediately. Uh, French forces of the 2nd Armored Division under General Philippe Lecran arrived from the west on the 24th of August, while the U.S. 4th Infantry Division Press up from the south. Scattered fighting continued throughout the night, and by morning of August 25th, Paris was liberated. Who's in Paris? <clears throat> the fucking Americans. Oh, also, shit. look at that uh, top photo. You can see the uh, M8 Scott. That's a very nice looking photo of that. Yeah, color. That's probably original color, right? Fine. Maybe uh, I'll have yes. to actually finish mine. Do it. Do it. I'm about to oh, you that mine. oh, I forgot you started yours. Was yeah, that to be, I found out to be it didn't, didn't give you an interior. That was fun. <laughs> oh, oh, you're going to have to do the same thing I did with my M5. I have. Hey, that'll two... be the same interior, actually. Yeah, yeah. I have two of those M8 kits. What, the 48 oh. scale one? No, I got the 32nd scale oh. one. Oh. No, 35th, sorry. 32nd. Weird uh, scale. It's weird, though. <laughs> I ended up with two of them. Yeah. Well, make Completely one by accident. Pardon? Make one HIDF. Uh, actually, oh. one, of them, <laughs> one of them's going to be European. The other one's going to be Tarawa. Ooh. Oh, yes. Because what I'm going to do... going to be awesome. Little sidetrack. You know how Floki did his Type 97 Tarawa? Yeah. Yes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get him to send a whole bunch of photos of one of the sides of it, and then I'm going to try and match my one to it to make it look like the my M8 is next to next to a knocked out Type 97. Well, that's nice. Because <laughs> then if we out. ever do meet up, I'm going to be bringing it and see how well I did by pushing them together and see if I got it right. You're going to own nice. his build. You're going to like. You're going to be the death <laughs> of him. What's the movie about McDonald's where that guy, those two brothers, make have the McDonald's and that guy comes in and just steals it? That's going to be the founder. Yes, the founder. founder, Yeah, founder moment. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, operations continued in the British and Canadian sectors until the end of the month. On the 25th of August, the U.S. Second Armored Division fought its way into Elbu making contact with British and Canadian armored divisions. The Second Canadian Infantry Division advanced into Fort de la Lunde. Uh, oh, me. On the morning of August 27th, the area was strongly held. The 4th and 6th Canadian Brigades suffered many casualties over the course of three days as the Germans fought a delaying action in. <gasps> oh, shit, excuse me, I got heartburn. Mm. Action in terrain well suited for defense. The Germans pulled back on the 29th of August, withdrawing over the Sine the next day. 
On the afternoon of August 30th, the 3rd Canadian Infantry Division crossed the Sene near Elbu and entered Rome, however the fuck you say that, to a jubilant welcome. So, at the close of the campaign, here on the right-hand side, you got soldiers of the Highland Light Infantry of Canadians having breakfast in Beyrant, France on July 9th. I thought that was a pretty neat picture. You can see all the uh, spent Timmy's cups around them. <laughs> you can also see the uh, the lack of glass in that building behind. Jack, were you there at the uh, tactical Tim Hortons? Yeah, I showed up with the uh, Iltis. Did the uh, tactical Timmy's run? Yeah, he got there early on like July 7th or something. I was there. <laughs> They captured the airfield so the C-17 could land and offload the uh, shipping container that contained all the coffee. Yeah, no, it's the it's actually the shipping container that has the Tim Hortons in it at the GO station in Oshawa. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Did you know the Canadian Army actually does have a tactical Tim Hortons unit? Yes. No fucking way. <laughs> yeah, they do. They, like, they were, that thing was staffed by, like, I think it was Signal Corps. Oh, my God. Was it out of a shipping container? Yeah, it was brought by a C-17. Oh, shit. So all the uh, all the ones that are supposed to be at uh, Durham Go are veterans, surplus. I guess. They're surplus, yeah. yeah. They're surplus. They've got like, the little uh, poppy on their license plate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they've all, uh, yeah, they've all agreed to not show up to work. Have you ever seen that place open? Uh... Like once, I know. Actually, actually, every time I go wheels and wings on my own, it is. Really? You just need to start coming with me, man. I've never seen it open. Well, you know what it is. They close at three. That's why. I've I've never seen them in the morning either. Uh, that. Well, he just closed because he saw you were coming, so he didn't want you to be able to have anything nice. Oh right, yeah. Tactical Timmy's run. Fair enough. Okay. Sorry, Proceed. I've hijacked your slide. <laughs> oh, I don't give a fuck. Are you kidding me? Shit. More commentary, the better. Uh, but coming to the close of the campaign, Eisenhower took direct command of all Allied ground forces on the 1st of September. Concerned about German counterattacks and the limited material arriving in France, he decided to continue operations on a broad front rather than attempting narrow thrust. The link-up of the Normandy forces with the Allied forces in southern France occurred on the 12th of September as part of the drive on the Siegfried Line. On September 17th, Montgomery launched Operation Market Garden, an unsuccessful attempt by Anglo-American airborne troops to capture bridges in the Netherlands to allow ground forces to cross the Rhine into Germany. Uh, here on the right-hand side, you get a really dope picture of Canadian troops with the captured Nazi flag, El Ezra. Uh, more about the campaign close, the Normandy landings were the largest seaborne invasion in history with nearly 5,000 landing craft and assault craft, 289 escort vessels, and 277 minesweepers. The opening of another front in Western Europe was a tremendous psychological blow for Germany's military, who feared a repetition of the two-front war of World War One. The Normandy landings also hurled the start of the race for Europe between the Soviet forces and the Western powers, which some historians consider to be the start of the Cold War. 
Victory in Normandy steamed from several factors. German preparations along the Atlantic Wall were only partially finished. Shortly before D-Day, Rommel reported that the construction was only 18% complete in some areas as resources were diverted elsewhere. The deceptions undertaken in Operation Fortitude were successful, leaving the Germans obliged to defend a huge stretch of coastline. The Allies achieved and maintained air superiority, which meant that the Germans were unable to make observations of the preparations underway in Britain and were able to interfere via and were unable to interfere via bomber attacks. Transport infrastructure in France was also de severely disrupted or uh, disrupted by Allied bombers and the French resistance, making it difficult for the Germans to bring up reinforcements and supplies. Much of the opening artillery barrage was off-target or not concentrated enough to have an impact, but the specialized armor worked well except on Omaha, providing close artillery support for the troops as they disembarked onto the beaches. The indecisiveness and overly complicated command structure of the German High Command was also a factor in the Allies' success. Alright, so now we're going to move into the Normandy casualties. So we're going to start with the Allies. Here on the right-hand side, you have the Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial. It's a beautiful picture there with a nice, clean uh, fucking word, cemetery. Uh, from D-Day to August 21st, the Allies landed 2,052,299 men in northern France. The coast of the Normandy campaign was high for both sides. I'm sorry, the cost of the Normandy campaign was high for both sides. Between the 6th of June and the end of August, the American army suffered 124,394 casualties, of whom 20,668 were killed and 10,128 were missing. Casualties within the 1st Canadian and 2nd British armies are placed at 83,045, 15,995 killed, 57,996 wounded, and 9,054 missing. <gasps> of these, Canadian losses amounted to 18,444, with 5,021 killed in action. One in seven Canadian soldiers killed between 6 June and 11 June were killed after surrendering in a series of executions that would be named the Normandy Massacres. The Allied Air Forces, having flown four. 180,000 to 317 sorties in support of the invasion lost 4,101 aircraft and 16,714 airmen, which 8,536 members of the USAAF and 8,178 flying under the command of the RAF. The free French SAAS paratroopers suffered 77 killed with 197 wounded and missing. Allied tank losses have been estimated at around 4,000, with losses split evenly between the American, British, and Canadian armies. Historians slightly differ on overall casualties during the campaign, with the lowest losses totaling 225,606, and the highest at 226,386. That's just insane. It's, yeah, that short amount of time in that huge area with all that going on, that is, and the amount of, what gets me is the amount of people that are missing, that just yeah, right? vanished. That is a lot of fucking people. Like, 
the, my old battalion in the Marine Corps at our peak was uh, 1,400 people. Like, that's, that's insane to have that times like seven go missing, right? It's just baffling that that many people can just disappear. I mean, you, 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 part of, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but during the Operation Cobra, um, the Allied did a daylight bombing and to soften up German defenses, and 60% of the casualties taken during Operation Cobra were from Allied blue on blue. Yeah, because uh, they they had no way of actually like sighting the bombs. Like they they were bombing on a single axis, and because they had not properly like sighted the axis, yeah, they, so many of the bombs fell long or short, which is really unfortunate. Really unfortunate. Um. But now we're going to move on to the Axis casualties from Normandy. So here on the right-hand side, I get a nice, beautiful picture of a destroyed German armor in Normandy. Uh, looks like a Panzer IV, maybe. But, uh, or was no, It's IV? definitely a Tiger. <laughs> All right, fucking Russia. Uh, there are no exact figures <laughs> regarding losses <laughs> in Normandy. Approximately 2,000. 300 tanks and assault guns were committed to the battle of which only 100 to 120 crossed the Sine at the end of the campaign. That is a horrible ratio. Holy shit. Uh, while German forces reported only 481 tanks destroyed between D-Day and the 21st or the 31st of July, research conducted by operational research section from the 21st Army Group indicate that the Allies destroyed nearly 550 tanks in June and another 500 and between June, June and July, and another 500 in August for a total of 1,050 tanks destroyed, including 100 destroyed by aircraft. Luftwaffe losses amounted to 2,127 aircraft. By the end of the Normandy campaign, 55 German divisions, 42 infantry, and 13 panzer have been rendered combat ineffective. Seven of these were disbanded. By September, OB West had only 13 infantry divisions, three panzer divisions, and two Panzer Brigades rated as combat effective, which is just baffling. Uh, more about the Al Axis casualties. Here on the right-hand side, you got a nice cemetery in Normandy uh, for the Germans, which is kind of weird to me that they have that. But uh, The Allied forces in northern France reported the capture of 47,000 Germans in June. 36,000 in July and 150,000 in August, a total of 233,000 for the three months of Operation Overlord. Jesus. That is a huge number of guys being captured. Now, around 80,000 German soldiers are buried in Normandy, although this figure does include an unreported number of Germans who died prior to the battle and those who died in captivity after the end of the fighting. German forces in France reported losses of 158,930 men between D-Day and the 14th of August, just before the start of Operation Dragoon in southern France. In action at the Falaise Pocket, 50,000 men were lost, of whom 10,000 were killed and 40,000 captured. Sources vary on the total German casualties. Uh, Nicholas Zitterling notes that OB West figures for summer of 44 in the West, thus including in its scope Operation Dragoon in southern France, amounted to 289,000 uh, total, which is 23,019 killed. 
67,060 wounded, and one, this is the, the baffling part, 198,616 missing. That's almost 200,000 men. Like, that's just, how do you, how do you, how do 200,000 people go missing? Dude. Yeah. How no do you lose 200,000 people? I don't know. That's, I mean, I, I could see if like you had a, you have like a, like a company or a, a battalion of dudes in an area and you just get bombarded or whatever and people get vaporized by bombs or whatnot because that shit happens. Sure, mm. you can't count them as dead unless you get confirmation. But there's no way that 200,000 men just vaporized. There's no way. Well, I mean, with the RAF's tactics, it, it's not completely. <laughs> Not completely out of the picture. <laughs> uh, fair, shit. yeah, fair, fair enough. Well, well, when that thousand thousand plane thousand bomber raid comes over, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Bit overkill uh, for one peninsula, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got our job done, didn't it? <laughs> uh, well, the gentleman states that the record is generally reliable, but also that it might have underestimated losses in some places, such as Cherbourg. Zigerling goes on to estimate specifically the German Army casualties in Normandy region, specifically from June 6th to August, as 210,000. However, he also notes that, quote, the Germans most likely suffered further manpower losses when air or naval battles were overrun. Now we're going to move into the really sad part, which is the civilians. Here on the right-hand side, you have a very sombering picture of a German, I'm mean, sorry, a British soldier escorting a elderly lady in Cannes, July of 1944. And you can really see how destroyed that city is. There is nothing left of it. Yeah, look at that. That is just, that's awful. I thought that was Dresden at first. Like, not that that's not the subject, but that's the type of images you would see of something like Dresden. Well, during the liberation of Normandy between 13,632 and 19,890 French civilians were killed and more were seriously wounded. In addition to those who died during the campaign, 11,000 to 19,000 Normans were estimated to have been killed during pre-invasion bombing. A total of 70,000 French civilians were killed throughout the course of the war. Land mines and unexploded ordnance continued to inflict casualties upon the Normandy population following the end of the campaign. And that is still a problem. I think up to today in some spots. You still have every so often the uh, they will have to blow up an unexploded mine. That's so. That's going to be Ukraine for the next probably hundred years. That's so sad. Yeah, good point. Uh, it doesn't help that they're trying to pour more weapons into Ukraine as well, because like that those are just going to get in the hands of like the Wagner Group and. You know, well, we'll think of this. Just you know what the butterfly mines are, right? The ones they drop from the air. Those are yeah, horrible. Yeah. Those yeah. are so small; they're hard. Like you can detect them with like a metal detector and shit, but they're so small, they're hard to see, and they drop randomly. So 
I mean, for crying out loud, who knows how many of those are going to be found in 50, 60, 70 years that are still active, you know? Oh, good point, dude. The worst thing is that the Russians designed those to look like kids' toys. That right, is so yeah. fucked. Fucking Russians, man. Well, let's uh, let's continue on. That's for another episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm going to take this over to Callum. Uh, thank you for putting up with my not the greatest reading skills. Uh, been a rough couple of weeks for me. So this has been a nice break. I appreciate it. You have definitely oh. offended a lot of French people, I think, with but that's okay. pronunciation. We liberated you. Be, be grateful. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I figured, well, we've talked about you know, Normandy, various places and <laughs> units and stuff like that. Well, we're all modelers, so I figured, well, we'll talk about uh, references, um, inspirations, you know, what it looks like, in-depth, stuff like that. So first up, we have uh, the Normandy landca- landscape. And the first one, the first thing that immediately pops to your mind, what is it? Bocage. Bocage. Yeah. It was one of the things that Normandy was known for to make things really difficult was the bocage. Where you have basically roads with big hedgerows on either side, so you can't see anything. It's great for ambushes. Uh, tanks can't move around as much. Yeah, thanks, France. Yeah, bloody France. It is literally a tactitioner's wet dream. Yeah, uh, if you're defending, if you're attacking, it's terrible. Well, hell, even I mean, attacking, yes, it's horrible. But I mean, towards the middle of the campaign, they were they were finding some good tactics to. Uh, to take over the, over certain areas. Yeah. Um, but there's been instances of, like I know that um, M8 Scots apparently, um, uh, because, of the, because of the landscape and infantry could hide really well in it, a lot of times tanks got attacked by infantry when they're, you know, the front line's been pushed, pushed back a lot further than you expect and suddenly you got this, this squad coming out at you I know MH Scots had difficulty with that because, um, you know, open top, behind enemy line, you know, supposedly they're behind their lines. And there's a lot of times that tanks got attacked uh, when they thought they were safe just because infantry are hidden um, within the landscape. So it, it's also close quarters, um, can't That's see what anything. That's the 50s for. Pardon? That's what the 50s for. <laughs> But so th- this is basically what it looks like. It's a very unique landscape compared to like World War Two has got some unique landscapes, and this is definitely one of them of the bocage. R- r- real quick, I would love to see somebody make a diorama of an inmate Scott being ambushed by uh, like if like the crew's out there playing cards or something with like a makeshift table because they're behind lines. And then here comes the fucking kraut squad about to ambush him. That would be spectacular. <coughs> Dennis, please. Uh, well, Me. actually, Garrison, you say that. <laughs> uh, so I'm part of two group builds for D-Day. I'm going to be na- making two builds for it. You, you know that diorama Paul did of the two-sided? Yes. I'm going to be doing that, but with a bocage uh-huh. hedgerow in the middle. On one oh. side's going to be my M8 Scott that's going to have the um, tanker close quarters uh, battle guys around it. And on the other side is going to be my Stug 4. With yes! All the, uh, oh, shit, yeah. With all the scale color stuff on it. So, yeah, I'm going to do a two-sided diorama. Fucking right on. 
yeah, that's going to look pretty cool. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's going to look pretty cool. Are you kidding me? Shit. I've just got to figure out how you did your hedgerows, Garrison. I, I will. We can have a discussion about that. Sounds good. But, well, here are some pictures I posted of the hedgerows. I've got a whole folder. Folder. God damn, I can't fucking speak. A whole folder <laughs> on my computer of Normandy. Like I said, I'm, I'm low-key obsessed with the Normandy campaign. Like, look at that. That's like, ugh. <laughs> but yeah, so if you want to do Normandy, this is sort of your classic Normandy diorama. Hedgerows everywhere. Yeah. It's great for modeling, i got to say. It's really good. It, yeah, it's wonderful for modeling. If, uh, if you haven't yet... I'm going to do a little self-promotion real quick, fellas. If you haven't yet, go to my YouTube channel on Completed Dioramas Playlist. I have a Normandy Bucage diorama that I made last year. Uh, really fun doing that. And right now, I'm working on another Bucage diorama. So stay tuned for that. Super fun. I want to make so many more of these, but it takes it costs so much money to do it. Yeah, you have to pay a fortune for foliage. Yeah, that's like the worst part. Okay, what's next? And of course, of course you have the uh, Point de Hoc or Point de Ho. Depends on uh, your standpoint because the Americans call translated as Du Hoc, but uh, originally it's supposed to be De Ho, as in H O E. That's the most the American are here. thing. <laughs> yeah, I spent my, I spent the war storming the hole. <laughs> <laughs> but so the cliffs of Point de Hoc is uh, well, you got the LCA there at the bottom. It is difficult to find a model of an LCA. There is not enough. Of, there's not many of them because, uh, of course, they were modified to have rocket-propelled grappling hooks to send up ropes and ladders and stuff like that on top of the cliffs. So That is some James Bond level stuff. Oh, uh, like the, the Call of Duty 2 Rangers, mission Rangers. where you, oh, where you yes. watch that is. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, if you're going to model De Hoc, there we are, the Rangers. Uh, that is one thing that the Rangers are well known for, is that uh, little engagement there. So, this is good for dioramas. It's uh, very, it was heavily bombed. You got bombed out bunkers, pill pillboxes, gun emplacements, even though make sure there's no guns in them, because they weren't there. Yep. Um, but, you know, it's very, you can see it's just rubble, craters, but very, uh, very cool. You can get really creative with this, with the sort of destroyed uh, concrete look. I uh, I made a point to like diorama a long time ago, and making the, uh, the empty gun emplacement and the the bomb the bomb craters was super fun. Yeah, so there's just uh again this is just purely inspiration for anyone who wants to get in on this. Whoa. So we have some vehicles. First oh, up, we oh. have what was known as the Rhino tanks. So of course, with the bocage and trying to get through hedgerows and all of that, they needed a way to. Uh, they couldn't afford to go around them because there were very few openings to get tanks through. And one those thing covered by AT guns. Yeah. So one thing they, they decided to do was they wanted to try and push through, but even tanks were struggling with their, with this task. What they decided was the uh, the beaches had all a whole bunch of tank traps, the hedgehog um, steel tank traps. What they decided to do on the beaches, when they dismantled them, as you can see in the middle photo, they cut them up 
turn them into these blade, uh, blade and cutters and put them onto the front of the tank. So you can see the two main designs they went for. The top one, you got this sort of plow type thing, and the, the bottom one, you got the more sort of cutting type. And these were sharpened. Uh, yeah, they were sharpened so they could cut through hedgerows as, as they push through, push them down, all of that. So this was very unique. Um, so originally, on the for the first few days, these were made on site, you know, on the beaches, on the beachheads, stuff like that. However, after reports came back of they were working, well, there is some debate on if they worked or not, depending on, <laughs> like you get some historians who go, oh, they didn't really do anything. And then you got people who were there and going, yeah, they, were, they, they did the job. It uh, doesn't the, matter. They look cool as fuck. Yeah, that as well. I mean, you know, you got a tank with spikes coming towards you. You'd, you'd, you'd run. Um, all the weathering opportunities. Yeah. Right. But, so the first few days, they were made on the beaches. But when the reports came back, they started installing these in England and in the States. They So they became standard kit for their tanks. So I thought that was a pretty cool detail. Oh, it so, definitely is. So yeah, Rhino, Rhino tanks make very cool uh, modeling subjects. What's next? Let's see. Yes. Of course, oh, as, as we talked about, we have the, the DD tanks or the duplex drive. The uh, The reason they're called this is they have two propellers on the back. And that is to propel them forward. And of course, their flotation device is a canvas screen. And there is not enough money in the world to get me on one of these uh, when it's in the water because uh, a lot sank. I'd do it. Mm. It's, it's the uh, Titanic submarine simulator. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, oh, yes. oh God. they got the Logitech controller in there. Oh dear! <laughs> but yeah, so you actually have two DD tanks. The one that everyone knows is the Sherman. You know, that's the, that's your DD tank. But they actually initially wanted to use Valentine tanks as DD tanks. They did. Um, and I've seen one in real life actually at Bovington. It's pretty cool. Someone restored one yeah, keep flexing that calm just keep flexing if i give you the bovington <laughs> oh yeah i may i'm getting so much out of this uh, uh yeah so when i was at bovington at <laughs> where i met the chieftain by the way um I hate him. <laughs> this, <guy. laughs> this sheep grabbing man. You're anyway. making him cry, Callum. Keep it up. Oh, I know. But they had, so they initially wanted to use Valentine's first. However, you can probably see the problem straight away if you compare the Sherman to the Valentine. Anyone guess what it is? Uh, it's fuck. I, I mean, it sucks. No, the Valentine was actually a very it good fucks. tank. I know. The main, the main thing I mean, is I the Valentine like turret that. is up front, whereas the Sherman is in the middle, and the Valentine barrel sticks out in front. So the only way you can have the screen up is the turret had to be rotated 180 degrees to face backwards. Which, when you're landing Reverse on a, when you so when you're landing on a beach, the minute you land and drop the screen, you still got to turn the turret around. Whereas in reality, you want to drop the screen and immediately start firing. So. Uh, it also caused some stability issues, whereas the Sherman is very, you know, it's centerline stable. The Valentine is a little bit front heavy because of the uh, the turret. But so initially they were going to use Valentines and Shermans. They just went with Sherman. The Valentine got dropped, even though they made a lot of them. They they didn't really use them. But yeah. they did train with them though. Yeah, 
they were used for training, but they never use, I don't think they use them on the uh, beach landings. No, no, they didn't. But yeah, duplex, drive, you have the canvas up, down, whatever. Looks cool. Up next, also a very um, Normandy campaign feature is the Hobart's funny tanks. The whole bunch of tanks have been converted into very, very specific roles, and some of them we've covered. Uh, the Churchill ones mainly. So, you, of course, you have the Churchill Crocodile here. You've got the Churchill Avery and the Bobbin. Uh, the other three here, we have the Sherman with the Crab Flail, the Mine Flail, which is just basically a big frame with a drum on it that's got that rotates at high speed and a whole bunch of chains. And what this does is uh, hits the ground in front of it, sets off any mines. Usually you had about three or four detonations before you had to change the, change the chains out because they've been blown off. Uh, this was also very good for hedgerows, long grass, anything like that, for flushing the enemy out as well. So, And it turned krauts into mincemeat. Yeah, so they definitely <laughs> didn't want to get in front of that. The bottom center, that is a center, um, that, it's a center that's been converted into a bulldozer. It looks awesome. I think IGB released one in 72nd they recently. Did, yeah, yeah. covered it during really? the episode. Yeah. So that, that's awesome. It looks, it looks amazing, doesn't it? And then on the top right there, you have a, a an M3 Grant that's been converted into a CDL or a Canal Defense Light, um, which is the name itself was actually a um, a way to keep it secret. Like you know, you hear Defense Light is purely defensive work, but what it is is you have a you got fake guns on it, except for a machine gun, and you got a you got a very thin slit in the front of the turret there. And that and that um, that was mainly just to protect the light, but what it did was it just shines this bright light over everyone, and basically turns night into daylight, whilst somewhat blinding uh, the Germans at the same time because you know it's a direct light at them. But this was uh, so it would be good for across water, open spaces, stuff like that. So these are some of the funnies. Uh, they are very unique to Normandy, but they were used later on, of course, because you've got them. Normandy is very unique. Please yeah. love my campaign. But yeah, so these are some of the things you do. If you want, research into the funny tanks because they are very varied and very cool. Uh, yeah. And of course, we have a few things for the Germans because, you know, they were there. They didn't do a <laughs> lot. They were there. <laughs> they were there. <laughs> so these are some of the uh, uniform schemes that they uh, use. So, of course, you've got the Falsham Jaeger and their very cool multi-camo multi um, jackets. The tankers, of course, wore their standard black, unless you, unless, and I learned this, learned this from Christian, unless they are uh, artillery, then they did not wear black. So, yeah. Didn't know that. I thought all tankers wore black uniforms, but no. Artillerymen didn't. Then, of course, you have the uh, Wehrmacht in their uh, field grey, the SS in a field grey jacket, but a uh, multicam dot um, pants. And you even had Luftwaffe per, um, personnel. And they, their colour scheme is very interesting. Their, their camo jackets are sort of a um, red and uh, dark yellow and blue pants. So that's quite an interesting scheme that and the next slide garrison's got some more 
Uh, yes, these are German troops outside of St. Lo just before. I believe it was just before or right after Operation Cobra started. That's a beautiful picture. It is. It's like it's one of the best colorized photos from the Normandy campaign I've ever seen. Yeah, so of course you have at least five different um, camos right here. Not a fan of the one on the left. The one on the far right, though, do like. I, don't know I like them all. They just look like they'll be a blast to paint. Hey, I'm oh, just yeah. saying, I will say the Germans, they had really good camo. They did. You cannot deny it. Known to have the sauce. Yeah. Yeah, they had <laughs> the drip. <laughs> That's one thing the, the Allies didn't do, is they didn't make their tanks colorful enough, except for in the desert. Yeah, well, they were too busy winning the war to be paying their tanks. <laughs> hey, hey, if you're going to win a war, do it in bloody style, you know? If you're going to lose a war, do it in style. Just do it all in style. All right? <laughs> Takes five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Speaking of style. And then mm. we have the tanks. So German tanks, because I was going to do a scheme for, do the uh, show color schemes for Allied, but that's literally just olive drab. That's it. So. You know. However, Normandy schemes for the Germans, so they were typically in, well, the tanks got delivered to the troops in Dunkelgelb, and then they were told, okay, you have um, Olive Grun and Rot Brown, or Brun, however you pronounce it, and basically go nuts. You know, they kind of feel a bit jealous about that. They, they were given a blank canvas of a tank with paint and just gone, you need a, you need a camouflage scheme. Have fun. Thus, scale modeling was born. Yeah, the OG scale models. <laughs> <laughs> then they went out to weather them. Yeah. So, <laughs> one thing I'm showing here, this might annoy, this will probably annoy a few people. When I when you say Dunkelgalb, there are very different. There are variations of Dunkelgalb, olive green, um, red brown, which is red brown. There are different shades of it all depends on where it's come from. I mean, even between modelers, we can't figure out which one's the real one. And even then, uh, I mean, there was standardization, but then if you try and use a color photo as a reference, it all depends on how well it was colorized. If it was colorized, if, it, if it's gone from a black and white to a colorized, or whether it was a color film, which is pretty rare in Second World War, um, how long it'd been out in the field? A lot of colors fade quite a bit, so that can change the um, can change the tone a bit. Um, yeah, depends on if it's muddy or not. Yeah, there's all these. It's not it's not like you can definitively say this is exactly this, this, and this by this photo because I think there's variations all the time. Long story short, stop rivet counting. Mm. So I've just got a few examples of what the camo schemes looked like and what the colors sort of looked like. Yeah, very cool. This episode is brought to you by Autoloader Decals. Have you wandered around the shelves of your local hobby store and found that perfect model kit? Great tooling, fun to build, and look, you remember seeing the subject. Perhaps it was a truck in the ubiquitous white UN paint scheme in the newspaper, or maybe it was a Sherman tank from your local armor unit. Everything is lining up for a fantastic new project, one with a more interesting connection to yourself, instead of a project derived from a history book. Then you open the kit, and there are none of those specific markings to be found. 
water slide decals really put the final touch on a model, and unfortunately for the model maker, most kit manufacturers won't put too much time into designing decals that produce a finished model in anything but its most stereotypical form. That's why Autoloader Decals exists. It is their sincere hope that you'll be able to find as much enjoyment using these special water slides as they have. Autoloader Decal pro products are primarily focused on Canadian subjects, but in general if you're looking for markings that represent vehicles from lesser known parts of modern history, chances are you might just be able to find something worth trying. The water slide decals are printed through an inkjet printer and sealed with a high quality varnish to ensure their strength on the model. Unlike most other water slides, these decals only need to be submerged for a few seconds and can be placed right onto the model. They are incredibly tough and won't yellow over time. For an added benefit, decals intended for 1 to 35 scale are treated with a special varnish that gives a subtle, painted on look that's both in scale and more realistic than other brands offerings. All the products currently in production are listed in the store page. If you have a custom design you would like to order, the best way of making this order is to send an email through the contact page. Generally, the cost of a custom order will be 40-50% to 50 higher than any products that are in stock to account for labour. Also, as a special deal, if you, have, if you are ordering a set of custom decals and you mention the Micro Machines podcast, you'll receive a free exclusive MMP Pinju decal with your order. So next time you're looking to build a specific or unique vehicle, look towards Autoloader decals. Just go to www.autoloadermodels.ca for all your water slide decal needs. And now, back to the show. Alrighty. Nice. Let's go. Alright, speed run time. Hi, speed run. You all know what's going on. We got a panda Pinju. with the press kit on. Let's go. <laughs> and first up, something I am so, so, so excited for. Screw off. You can't. You don't have time to praise it. What is it? It's a tallery, and they're making an Italian aircraft. It is the Machi MC202 Folgore in 30-second scale, highly detailed, full engine, full interiors. It comes with eight schemes, uh, photo etch. Um, also, I think they're 3D decals for the cockpit. Yeah, and the camo scheme, you actually get decals for the green squiggle line thingies because we all know so tedious. Much, <laughs> we all know how much of a bitch that is to try and airbrush yourself, especially for yeah. this camouflage for uh, Italian aircraft. They weren't; they were straight edge. So, yeah. Oh. And also okay, bugger yeah. mask that off, but I'm just showing. So you got the decal sheets, you got the photo etch sheets, uh, CAD renderings of what the engine bays and stuff looks like. So you have a, have it open or closed. Some of the ideas for the uh, camouflage. It's an Italian aircraft in thirty second. I want it so badly. For a tallery, that's wild. It looks Italian being good. Yeah, nightmarish. Yeah, they're stepping on. up their game recently. Nightmare. <laughs> Horrifying. All right. Next up. Next up from Tacom. Helicopter. An AH-64E Apache Guardian. So, <laughs> so it's got a full full cockpit and interior. And <laughs> oh, it's, got a, it's got a full white. Full? Uh, it's got a full suck my dick. Um, hey, anyway. yo. Hey. Whip it out. <laughs> yeah, come on, mate, big man. Prove it. As long as you turn the compressor on. I got hey, you, I got you. This house is going to be drunk. Oh no! He, did it. he was ready for that. Uh, anyway, so on this kit, you can assemble it as blade folded or not. And on the right hand side, you can see 
the parts that turn it from a standard AH64 into the E Guardian variant. So, yeah, the release uh, Tacom been releasing a shit ton of Apaches lately. You know what? I've I have watched uh, some people build it though, and I gotta be real with you. It doesn't look that good. It looks kind of really, really. Like the details great, but the actual parts fit is kind of bad. It not doesn't quite fit. up to par. Not even close. Ugh. Considering the amount of these they've been releasing, I yeah. know. I won't say I'm surprised. I'm just disappointed. That's it's really bad. Uh, anyway, Ooh. up next we have. So this is special hobby. No, I can't read. Yeah, that's special hobby. St- special the hobby. Czech dudes. Pardon? The check dudes. Yeah. They're releasing four new kits in 72nd scale. We have a Cobra in US or Turkish Army. We have a Mirage F1. A Supermarine Spitfire. No, that's a, no Seafire. Hmm. And a Swedish Saab JA-21, uh, Sweden's that's very it. first jet aircraft That's very fighter. cool. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. That comes with either gun pods or rockets, and you can see the number of rockets lined up under the fuselage. Ooh. Special Does hobby, anybody else make could. a kit of that? I don't think so. Huh. No, that's the first hmm. one. Special Hobby, any actually, like, is it good? Is it, or is it like they're, Hobby they're, Boss? I'll put it this way. So they, they their shtick is they make aircraft that nobody else has made so like they're it. the only game in town for it so basically they're short run kits they are injection molded which is nice you don't have to mess with resin they generally have really good detail because they'll give you a lot of uh, like photo etch and resin for things like the cockpit right but again short run kit they're pretty good as far as they go but still obviously be ready you know well like they're yeah. modern kits right they're not yeah they're, they're not boxes or anything they're not yeah. bad at all hmm we can go ahead and skip this one. Yeah, no, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> nope. Nope. Nobody cares. Ooh. Come on. Go back. Go back. <laughs> Come on. This was kind of sick. Come on, Kaba. Let's go. I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing my left arrow key. Actually, I can't find. Dennis, did you lose your mouse with the foot? <laughs> no, I, I'm painting right now. So, like, I, I've got paint in front of my keyboard. <laughs> okay, we so don't from, do... from Border Models, they're uh, copying Tamiya with their so Jagdpanzer Force. Um, this is shameless, man. Slash 70A. So, yeah. whoop de doo Yeah. No one cares. Yeah. No. Next up, though, they have yeah. a Kugelblitz cool. Flat Panzer cool. 4. <laughs> Hey, uh, I'll take this. It looks cool. It's got twin That's thirty mils. Cool, yeah, yeah. The box art is neat too. It is a good box art. I like how they're uh, using it as uh, anti-personnel, not anti-aircraft. <laughs> That's <laughs> a nice crunch. touch. <laughs> <laughs> when you get course, hit by that dollar store thirty millimeter. Yeah. So of course the Kugel uh, Blitz uh, basically it's built on the chassis of a Panzer IV. Uh, but it's mounted with a very fast rotating turret with, and it's armed with twin Mark 103 Duple Flak 30mm cannons. With a very, they have very cool compensators or whatever on the uh, barrels. They look cool. Mm. Next up, okay, uh, tack on with their turrets again. So they have the HMS Hood Mark 115-42 gun turret. This is the B. They released the A. This is the B. I found out something. 
So you know how when we looked at the uh, A, we were wondering what the thing on top of the turret is? You mean the sea whiz? Yeah. I found mm-hmm. out what, what those are. Those really? are aerial mines. What? Unguided <laughs> rocket aerial mines. They did it. They weren't that good. Um, go figure. I wouldn't expect them to be. Count, count. What is the motivation of this? Like, are these for like what? An- what anti-aircraft? What these what? did? What these did? Right? Was they fired up like a hedgehog, like mine deploy, right? And then when they got to the end of their tether, they were all tethered. They deployed a parachute, and they had and they were all calculated to have a rate of drop. And what it did was the aircraft would fly and hook onto one of these cables, which would then draw the mine to the aircraft and then detonate. Fiendish. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) fiendish. Um, They just put balloons in the sky. It's it's literally like the 1942 version of the C-RAM. Yeah. That's amazing. No, this is just a helium balloon. (laughs) So... Churchill, of course, was a big fan of any, anything new, and they uh, were watching a demonstration of the, one of these being used. However, the rocket misfired. It kind of spun around the place, and then the line for it got tangled up in the rigging and antenna of the battleship it was on. And kind of, like, luckily it was inert, but, you know. So naturally they used it. Buff out no. About. They, uh, I think only a few ships had them, and they didn't use them. But uh-huh. there's something cool. That I found out. Maybe if they had used their CRAM system to destroy the incoming shells, the hood wouldn't have been sunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's next? So I put in this one just for the Normandy campaign, Garrison. Mm-hmm. So this is a Screaming Eagles D-Day diorama kit. As of... Uh, who was the guys that shaved their heads? That was the eighty second, wasn't it? 101st. 101st. The 101st, yeah. So you got the... Hun- so you got... A figure for a hundred and first airborne trooper, and no, they're both no, they're both one hundred and first, with a yep. section of a Willie's Jeep. This is uh, this is one of those dioramas that you know you have a vehicle that's kind of cut off just so you can focus on the figures. And <laughs> <But>, yet, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but I thought I'd include this in because it does look very cool, and yeah, oh, it definitely does, especially it's with the mobile. Nice, uh... It's a nice video. Oh, that's sick. Up next by Thunder Model in 35th scale, we have a German Birch Panzer Hetzer with a two centimeter flak late that's been put onto it. So this is basically, there's, there's a few of them were made. I did find photos of them. And it's basically you get a Hetzer, take the top off, and then mount a 20 centimeter flak into it. So this comes, you can get the standard version or you can get the limited bonus edition. Uh, <laughs> boxing, and that that comes in with uh, full tra- um, fully modeled interior for the transmission. You get more fo- you get more photo etch, um, photo etch parts, and you know just more details to add on if you get the limited bonus edition. What? But, Why does it look so small in the bottom right corner? Because uh, because it's showing. Well, it's a Hetzer. Hetzers aren't big. Yeah, but the the one guy is like three times the size. Those are kids. And like perspective. That's in the background. He's in the Oh, background. they're stand okay. Never then they're standing on an, they're standing yeah. on an actual hipster okay. as well. <laughs> I didn't notice that. I do we, do that we need a, do we like... need to have a chat about three D and perspective or something, Jack? 
Yes, please. Yeah, that would be helpful. But yeah, it looks cool. Oh, this from Border again. Border's releasing a lot of stuff. That's this is sick. an IJ. This is an IJA twenty-eight centimeter howitzer from the Russo-Japanese War of nineteen oh five. This is a giant cannon that was breech loading. And get this, Dennis. It was brought back into service during the Second World War. Yes. It was for, it was a siege weapon that was turned into coastal defense. But around 1945, they because uh, they were, you know, sort of just decommissioned and put out the way, they were brought back into service in 1945 oh, uh, to defend perfect. Tokyo Bay and whatnot. So, yeah, it's a very old school um, siege cannon, uh, howitzer. Uh, it comes with that full base, full uh, turning trolley and everything. So it looks amazing. That's awesome. And it's also the the, the Russo-Japanese war isn't something that's covered a lot. So it's good to no, have yeah, something for right. it. I mean, it's 1905. That's, yeah. That's cool. Wait, hear, hear me out. Yeah. H-I-D-F. Yes. Yes. Loaded oh, on the back of... Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> M8. <laughs> <laughs> it's just girthier. Yeah. But yeah, this is full, you know, it's the it, 1905, so it's all riveted and cast and it Ready looks amazing. Rally, yeah, that's sick. And it's even got an elevation. Um, say, it's got a pro shot. It, has a, it, it has a crane on it, too. Yeah, that's because those, those shells weigh something like 50 kilos or something like that. Well, it's plus. They're big thick uh, coming from magic factory we have the m shorad bradley the m2a3 and a and four ifv and 35th scale these are three and one kits um so you have the three options one have well dennis what are the options you know more about okay more about so this than me you get the option of building the standard m3a4 which is basically the next-gen version of the Bradley, which you can see here, I believe that's going to be... Uh, so the green and the uh, tan options to the right, that's the M3A4. And then you have the ability to build the M Shorad, which is a short-range air defense version of the Bradley. That one basically, sum it up, it's got an extremely sensitive infrared seeker, uh, kind of like the one on the AIM-9. And it also has millimeter band radar for identifying and engaging air targets. You can build it with either the Hellfire missiles or the Stinger missiles. I yeah. might have to go into modern armor for this one. I know yeah, you're going to get one, aren't you? Oh, I'm going to get like five. <laughs> well, it's three and one. You've got to build all three, don't you? Exactly oh, I didn't realize this was 35th. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need oh, one. Wow. Yeah, just, Ukraine, just for like reference, hold on. Let me John Madden this. How much time do we have left? We got. Nine minutes. We got time. So these bulges here on the turret, that's the <laughs> millimeter band radar. Huh. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. Bulges. <laughs> and lastly, from IG, IBG, which this will make uh, someone on our server very, very excited. I can hear him from over here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we They are releasing in 35th as well, a Chevrolet C60L Ambulance. And I think that just made Don on the server just wet himself. They got we... Joseph Stalin driving. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. But yeah, if you're a fan of the Chevrolets, the uh, C60s, 
this is a this is one for you because I know Don is currently struggling to build one of these. What's the kit he's got? Something terrible, it isn't looks, it? It looks oh, neat. The, uh, I thought oh, it looked mirror, right? models. He's got mirror C60. models, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So IBG was uh, a lot better. And that is all from Model News. Um, Garrison? Yo! Yes. Uh, sorry, Peyton. So, uh, along with, or the whole reason we went into the Normandy campaign today was because we are currently running a Normandy campaign group build. If you would like to find out more information about this group build, join the recreational or the competition portion. Go to our Discord. We have an entire category section dedicated to it. Uh, but this one you can submit for prizes. Uh, we have a first and second place. First place is your choice of 3D printed World War II tracks and paint set for either the Allies or Axes from our sponsor, Jeff, at Scale Colors. And then the second place, you get the Newer 1 to 35th scale Tamiya German late war infantry kit. Sounds good. And then, uh, just for fun, for shits and gigs, we are doing the Horizon Island Defense Force Group Field. Uh, you know, that's run until October. Uh, the Normandy Group Build is running for, uh, until August 30th. So come on, join the group builds, have fun. Uh, we have a lot of submissions already. Uh, we're a lot of people working on stuff already, so uh, come join the fun. Yeah. And Dennis, you go yes. for this one. The Micro Machines podcast, on that note, is sponsored by Scale Colors and Scale Colors 3D. If you are interested in getting some non-toxic uh, water-based, uh, yeah, they're water-based, airbrushing paints are very accurate to the real things used historically, why don't you go on to scalecolors.com, that is, scalecolors.com and check out Jeff's amazing selection of naval, aircraft, and armor paints. As well, if you're interested, check out his uh, section of 3D printed tank tracks. They're individual link, super easy to put together, and very detailed. Again, thanks very much for your sponsorship, Jeff, and thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. If you want to help keep the lights on here at the Micro Machines podcast and get access to exclusive content like special episodes and bloopers, go to our Patreon, which is in the link of in the description of this video. And why don't you think about tossing us a couple bucks? It goes to help pinge you the panda, and it helps us keep the lights on. And that, gentlemen, was the Micro Machines podcast with exactly sure five was. minutes remaining. Perfect. We did it. We did yeah, it, boys. We did it. We did it. We did it. We we solved the the, the Normandy problem. <laughs> the Normandy problem. <laughs> <laughs> we personally intervened. All right. Shall All we right. close this out? Yes. Well, if you've gotten to this point, thank you so much. You have been watching and listening to the Micro Machines podcast. Please stay tuned and catch us next week. Awesome. Bye, everyone. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Good night, sweet dreams. Good night. Mm-hmm. We all love you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.